it's a delightful privilege and opportunity that we have this evening. And certainly, as is often the case, we're blessed with fresh and friendly and faces who are visitors who've come our way. And we're certainly thankful for your presence. And we hope that the service will be an uplifting and encouraging one to you, as well as the same we hope for ourselves as the membership here at Pippin, that we might set ourselves off on this week of service and loyalty to the God of heaven by being able to meet and honor and adore him this evening in this period of worship. As we come to this very last service, on Sunday that is, for the year 2009, we might well recall that this morning we took a somewhat brief look at a lesson entitled, Thinking Back and Looking Ahead, in which we brought to remembrance some of the things that might well be said about the year of work here at Pippin, and also to set the stage for some of the things that we could look forward to in the coming year. This evening, as we consider perhaps a corollary or extension of that lesson, we'll consider a lesson entitled Expectation for 2010. After all, it is the case that if it be the privilege and pleasure of the God of heaven, come Friday of this week, we will enter into the first day of the year 2010. And as we think about what lay ahead for us at Pippin, certainly there are some things that we can use much like an anchor to help keep the ship righted, to make certain that it doesn't lean or sway too much one way or the other, but things that can be employed by each of us not only, of course, congregationally, but each of us individually, to help us in the coming year. And this evening, I thought we'd make a consideration of just a few of these ideas. By way of introduction, or by way of beginning for those sets of thoughts, we noted this morning in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, this rather challenging and profound passage, in which we're reminded, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. It is to that passage that we can well recollect the interesting passage of Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. We noted this morning a number of privileges that's ours to speak or proclaim the Word of God in love, be it from this pulpit, from a various stand as Bible classes are presented, be it by way of radio, television, or other medium. This evening as we ponder other ways in which that is done, and as we ponder the basic character of life that makes that possible, I would ask that we first of all consider a lesson that has this as its basic thrust, the changelessness of the Christ. The changelessness of the Christ. It seems, at least to me, a rather important message, and I think the Word of God will back us up on that thought that we must never forget or lose sight of the changelessness of the Christ. Let's, in fact, consider what we might well mean by that. Isn't it an humbling thing to take a look and reflect on the changing character of the world around us? Even here in this community, haven't we seen that so very often? What once was a nice farm with a lovely meadow is not long into the future perhaps going to be a parking lot, and a discount store will be there. What once was a recognized character of something that was long held as a belief, and the way that things were typically done is giving sway to that which is the new means and the new methodology. What once was a rather trusted and well-understood nature for perhaps a long-standing friendship is forfeited for the newfangled ways of tomorrow. The world is a very fluid place, isn't it? 
It, it seems so easy to jettison the long-held ways and traditions of the past and to embrace that which is the newfangled ways of today and tomorrow. In fact, not only is that so often the case with respect to the world, it is becoming much more the case also with respect to religion. If one is able to keep up with much of that which is transpiring in the religious world of today, if you read many of the religious magazines, there is a very clear tone that seems to undergird most of what's presented. A tone, a character that perhaps goes something like this. Today's society is a rather fast-paced world. There is a unique set of needs that an old Bible cannot satisfy. There's a unique set of demands in the society of today. People are hungry and thirsting for that which an old Bible that is obsolete can no longer provide. Folks need something new. They need something up to date. They need something modern. They need something that can satisfy their needs like that which was written 20 centuries ago cannot possibly do. And hence, one by one, one is able to see various and sundry other things about what is appreciated by virtue of the old gospel to be cast aside, superseded, and replaced by what men think will do a better job. As one thinks about the nature of that kind of change, I submit to you that this evening we need to appreciate the fact the truth does not change. The truth does not change. I even placed it in capital letters so that we wouldn't miss that point on this opening slide. In fact, are we not taught by the Savior Himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, if it is the case that the Lord is the truth, and He said that He was, then when we marry that passage with Hebrews 13, 8, which reads, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That must mean that the truth doesn't change. That must mean that the truth said the same thing yesterday that it says today and that it shall say tomorrow. There can be no change in that matter. And thus, those who clamor for change and who in fact lift high the banner of new things when it comes to the proper approach in religion are approaching the wrong tree, seeking the wrong matter, and they're doing nothing but destroying the precious gospel by perverting it. One cannot, in fact, change the gospel without destroying it. Wasn't it to the Galatian brethren that Paul wrote so loudly and clearly in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9? Though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any unto the gospel unto you, then that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul thus asserted to the Galatians, Friends, you may not, cannot change the gospel without perverting it. That is still true in the year 2009 as well as the year 2010. One of the things then that we must embed solidly within us is the understanding that whatever may come our way by way of opportunity, by way of possibility, by way of potential for the year 2010, it must be undergirded with the reality that the truth of the gospel does not change and the Christ is changeless. In fact, some passages that highlight the changelessness of the Christ, and these are those that we shall find there at the bottom part of that slide, would in fact be these. Isn't it a fascinating thing to understand that the Hebrew letter of the New Testament in fact highlights the very thing we're discussing this evening, the changelessness of the Christ. 
In fact, how does the Hebrew letter proceed to do that? Notice in chapter number 1, immediately it's set before all who would read that lovely and scintillating book, the thought that the Christ Himself stands worlds apart from the changeable character of the world around us. Verses 11, 12, and 13 bring that point home so vividly. For in fact, the inspired writer there said, the heavens that are about us, speaking about this atmosphere, the Hebrew writer said there's coming a time it'll be rolled up like an old garment. It is changeable. It will be destroyed. But thou, he wrote, speaking of the Christ, art the same. Note the contrast with me. Whereas the things about us in the world seem so fluid and changeable, and they come and go with the seasons and with the fancies of men, thou, he wrote, speaking of the Christ, art the same. Later in that same book, what about the priesthood of the Christ? Does it change with the coming of the times and seasons? Does it pass away with the character of humanity? Not in the slightest. In fact, many of us could directly affirm the words of Hebrews 5 verse 6, Thou art forever a priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Notice that same statement of Hebrews 5 verse 10, as well as Hebrews 7, repeated twice in that chapter, reminds us of the unchanging, eternal priesthood of the Christ. Again, it does not change with the times or the seasons. That makes it, of course, very distinct and different from the old Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. But notice yet another characteristic. We notice that the unchanging character of the Christ stands so different than the changing moods and whims and fancies of the religious ideas of men. On Sunday mornings in the Bible study, we have been noting from our study in Exodus what the ancient Egyptians held high and the kind of religion that they held so dear, worshiping a whole host of supposed gods, bowing before their presence and honoring them in ways virtually unthinkable to us. And yet, think about how many other societies throughout the ages also have given their attention to the pursuit of something that they called religion, something that to them had spiritual meaning. And yet it was not what the God of heaven has taught. The book of Hebrews also asserts to us the fact that there is an unchanging truth of God that's presented for all, and it is that redemptive nature of the blood of Christ. In Hebrews 7 verse 26, For we have an high priest, speaking on that occasion, who is undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That high priest that, of course, again, is Jesus, the Son of God, is that same priest spoken of in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 7, with an especial focus on verses 11 and 12. For it is in that passage we read that he offered one sacrifice for sins, forever. Thus, there's never a need to duplicate, extend, improve upon in any way that sacrifice. It was a one-time offering for all of sin forever. Note the changelessness. God sent forth His Son into this world and He was here one time. There is no plans for Him to come back again. Even on the occasion of His second coming, it is far different from being an opportunity for Him to come back and set up a kingdom. The kingdom is already here and has now been so for 2,000 years or thereabout. He isn't coming back to establish a kingdom. He's coming back to draw the reins of that kingdom to a conclusion and hand it over to His Father, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. 
It thus is the case that what men have long hailed as significant, valuable because it's changeable, stands so different from the changelessness of the Christ. May we thus at Pippin, and may we individually base our lives on the unchanging character of the Son, that Son of God, the lovely high priest, Hebrews 8 verse 1, that stands for you and I for all time as the only mediator and thoroughfare to heaven. No wonder the solid foundation is asserted so lovingly in 1 Corinthians 3.11. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus. He thus should be the foundation of my life and the same for you in this coming year. And thus one of the things that we certainly must do is rest upon that foundation. If we veer from it, we make a tragic mistake. We perhaps not only will doom ourselves, but others whom we influence with that kind of foolish teaching and doctrine. For the truth of God does not change. But might we also consider yet another lesson. Not only the unchanging character of the Christ, but also to ask this point. In what way should one build upon that foundation? If the foundation is unshakable, namely the unchanging nature of the Christ, how should you and how should I proceed to build upon it? May I submit that the Bible gives us a number of thought-provoking passages, a number of lovely considerations that challenge each of us. Let's consider just a few of them and then proceed to extend that somewhat thereafter. We each are well aware again of the thought that the world will provide many supposed foundations that in many ways are said to be able to be built upon that foundation of the Christ. In other words, what is said, you can have your Christ, but really consider that as basically one stone among many others. Look at these other things as equal to the Christ and actually found your life based in thoroughness upon these matters. For that's what will lead you to be accepted. It's what will lead you to be considered popular, famous, and normal. It's what will lead you to be that which others will look to as a change agent and one who can influence so mightily the things around you. For instance, what about education? No one would question, I suppose, or argue that an education can be a valuable, valuable thing. When learning is used properly and rightly, it can influence not only oneself with tools and capabilities to profoundly impact others. It can also be a means of, in fact, bettering oneself and one's progeny for generations to come. It truly can be a life-changing thing when used rightly. But that does bring us to what if it isn't used rightly? What if one allows it to supersede the foundation of the Christ? What if it is allowed to supersede the doctrine presented by the Christ? And aren't we well aware that many supposed scholars, professors, teachers, instructors, and otherwise are more than happy to share what they consider far more valuable than the teaching of this book? What was it that Solomon asserted in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12? Near the close of that book, of the making of many books there is no end. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now certainly to those who would be students, don't take that the wrong way. He's not saying that a rightful study and a proper approach to study is a poor thing. 
Many are the students whom I've seen who would suffer beneath the load of failure to study. What Solomon was asserting to us is don't let those teachers and their proclamations lead in their study to you replacing in your mind the teaching of truth. When study of humanity is allowed to usurp and to reign supreme over the doctrine of God, it has gone too far. You have allowed it to steep too deeply in your mind, and you have allowed it to subsume that which it never should have done. Truth is of God. Those matters that thus humanity presents, though valuable they might be, and when taken rightly and properly, they're a choice gift and blessing. But when taken improperly, they become a weariness. They will lead one astray from the truth that God has brought. So, might we note, education does not stand equal in human terms to the deliverance of God. What's more, what about another possibility? There are those who will claim all the answers that humanity needs to find can be found in the political realm. When individuals will lead properly, when they will gather rightly and make the decisions, they can lead us to the utopian society we want to have, peace reigning over the earth, everybody with a full stomach and a good education. Every four years we hear promises that sound somewhat like that at least. Might we say that it never has been able to bring forth those promises, and I submit to you it never will. If we are interested in finding how that politics may lead us, all we need to do is revisit the Old Testament. Did it ever lead Israel to fame, popularity, culture, and wealth? Only when God was behind it and only when they sought the Lord. In Proverbs 14, 34, are we not still in a position to read that righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people? Standing in direct contrast to that are texts like 1 Kings 15, 34, in which there we read about Jeroboam made Israel to sin. Here was a leader of Israel who did not lead them to prosperity. He led them to bondage. He led them to captivity because he rebelled against the God of heaven. And any king, any president, any leader, any political figure who has the nerve to withstand the treasure and power of God will lead his people in the same direction today. They'll be in bondage to sin. They'll be in bondage to iniquity. They'll be in bondage to foolish and terrible kinds of living. Thus, politics is not the basis for the answer of life, just as education wasn't either. But perhaps in the third place, might we ask about the character of yet another? As you can see on that slide, what about friendships? So many clamor to be accepted as normal. I want to have a lot of friends. I want to be accepted. And make no mistake, that can be a very strong and powerful pressure in life. But one thing we must never, ever forget the impressions and influence of friends and what they think must not be allowed to stand equal to what the proclamations of truth are. Friends, however, are, after all, are only people. Men or women, boys or girls. They're subject to the iniquities and sins of the mind. They're subject to poor judgment. They're subject to awful kinds of living themselves. Surely then their opinion cannot be allowed to stand equal to this. Notice some of the statements about friendships. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 15. 
We're admonished in Psalm 119, verse 63, to make friends of those who love the Lord, to let them be your closest companions, and let them be the ones whose advice you seek so carefully. In addition to friendships, what about the decrees of men? There are many who are happy to base their thinking on what men have said, be it those in one realm of life or another. Sometimes it's those in the scientific realm. Sometimes it's those in governmental realms. Sometimes it's those in religious realms. The writings of men, though they might be fruitful to read, to at least better understand where others have reached their conclusions, again, isn't it the Word of God that is the one that shall be our judge? Wasn't it the Lord Himself who said in John twelve forty eight? Interestingly, these words, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That statement from Jesus forever reminds us then of the unchanging character of this word and how that it shall be that which is our judge. So powerfully, Peter affirmed in John 6 verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Notice he didn't say our friends, our neighbors, our associates, our government, our teachers, our leaders. Thou, Lord, hast the words of eternal life. Furthermore, perhaps in one final way, what about the things around us? Make no mistake that one of the severest temptations for a nation as blessed as we is to put too much confidence in those things we own. The possessions that we're so abundantly blessed with we work for it. We long to ensure it, to ensure we have it. We can pass it on to our heirs. We want to make sure we have lots and lots of things, thinking that they'll make our life better, that they'll make our life more efficient, that they'll make our life higher to what it ought to be. There ain't anything wrong with possessions rightly approached, rightly utilized. Abraham was a man of many possessions. He was wealthy, Genesis 13, verses 1 and 2 tells us. In the New Testament, we encounter those who also had much. There are times that they were condemned, not because of the riches, but because they loved them. And they sought them, and they gave their life in approach to them. When our riches reach that point, they've become wrong. They have become a dividing point. They stand between us and God. And just as Jesus told that rich young ruler, sell what you have and come follow me, we also should realize our need, too, to separate ourselves from them and to not let them reign and rule over us. Jesus forever said in Luke twelve fifteen, in regard to a person's riches, He said, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. As long as you and I understand that fact, what God allows us to have, we will use properly. And we'll use it to glorify Him, and we'll use it in ways that will honor His kingdom. And that should be our goal. One of the things that stands before us in the year 2010, with these thoughts in mind of what the proper foundation is not, how are we building on that proper foundation we've already discussed? The changelessness of the Christ, how are you and how am I building on that foundation? Let's use the few moments we have remaining in our lesson tonight to think somewhat about how we should answer that question and the ways that in the coming year we might be able to, in fact, build even better than maybe we have in times past. 
near the, near the bottom of that screen, it is certainly an appropriate thing to notice that the coming year or the changing of the year, as is shortly to take place before us, is frequently a time of reflection and introspection, a time to look back and think, I'd like to be better in the coming year. Perhaps someone could say, I'd like to be a better father. I'd like to be a better husband. Perhaps I'd like to be a better wife or a better mother. I'd like to be a better employee. I'd like to be a better Christian. Maybe you've thought about things like that as this year is coming to its conclusion. Maybe each of us, at least from time to time, think about with reflection what might be better, what things would God have me do differently as we examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, read 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and as we strive to prove all things and cling to that which is good, read 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 20 and 21, might we in fact make note of some interesting things. One of the first things to be noted is any change that takes place is likely to come to fruition and accomplishment only if these three things are in place. First, an appreciation of the importance of the change. If we don't see the need in it and the importance of it, it's unlikely that we will invest the effort to make the change. So one of the first things that if we are desirous of making change is to embed in our mind the importance of it, the urgency of it, and the significance behind it. But secondly, you'll notice that this also requires determination. Change doesn't come easily. We each understand that the universe seems to have a property called inertia. It's resistant to changes. We tend to follow the same old path by virtue of habit that we have done in the past. If any lasting change will take place, it will require determination, a de dedication and devotion on your part and mine. And that also, by direct means, requires effort. And there's a word that much of the world seems to have little interest in work. We much prefer the path of least resistance, isn't that true? And yet, if lasting change will occur, it will require effort, and it will require labor, and it will require work. With those thoughts in mind, notice some of the latter thoughts upon that screen, if you would. You might notice in regard to gradual growth, is what the scriptures speak about. We shouldn't expect December 31 to turn into January 1 and suddenly I will be the biblical scholar that I have never been before. That will not happen overnight. Now there was a time in the age of biblical miracles when those apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They suddenly were perfectly aware of truth that they had not known before, but friend, the age of miracles has passed. I can't wake up one morning and without study know what I haven't known before. None of us can in fact be in a position like that. Our study will be what's involved if we come to a deeper knowledge of the truth. But in addition to that thought, note the admonition of 1 Peter 2 verses 1 and 2. Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Notice there was the involvement of desire that would lead to, in its application, growth that would be the consequence. That thought challenges us in regard to that growth and leads us to one final brief set of ideas for the lesson this evening.
that spiritual growth to which we've mentioned and of which we have, in fact, made reference is a spiritual growth that, as we all well know, will be based on this Bible. Spiritual growth won't happen apart from it. No wonder it must be the central feature and the central character of what will promote that growth. Thus, some passages that might challenge us in that light are a whole host of those found in both Old and New Testament. Speaking about that church of the Bereans in Acts 17.11, it says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Unlike the folks in Thessalonica, these in Berea were Scripture searchers. They opened them daily and allowed that which was found therein to determine what was and what was not truth. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Study, Paul said, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Thus, Timothy was admonished and urged to be a Scripture searcher. And you and I, of course, are still reminded in that way today. The longest chapter in the Old Testament, the 119th Psalm, extols so lovingly and so highly the breadth and the beauty and the power of the Word of God and the impact it can have on your life and mine. Certainly of the 176 verses of that chapter, we won't read near all of them, but just notice an excerpt or two taken from that chapter. Verse number 2 perhaps begins our thinking in this way. Blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him with a whole heart. Who are those blessed? Those that keep His testimonies. Nine verses later in verse number 11, we notice, in fact, in the desire to, in fact, keep distant from sin, we read that this is the way it's done. Lord, I've hid Thy word in mine heart that I might not sin against Thee. Verses 15 and 16, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. The psalmist thus asserting that he would never forget the word of God, but desire always to know it more deeply and thoroughly. The 33rd verse as well as the 24th also extol that thought. Later we find in the, in the, in the 89th verse, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Again, reminding us that this is not subject to the tunes and the desires of man. In verse 97, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, Thy words are sweet unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my lips. Two verses later, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Verse 140, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verse 128, speak about the trueness and the unchanging character of God's Word. It is right always. Verse 160, thy Word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Those verses again are but a sampling of the ones one could mention. But all of them pointing us without question to this book. It might well be noted then in light of the latter thought of our lesson tonight. As we think about the Word of God, studying it in the coming year, allowing it to impact us, might we practically say that can we commit some of its verses to memory in the coming year? Might we take the opportunity to memorize some of our favorite passages and allow our mind to dwell upon that? 
we do find it interesting sometimes to memorize poems or perhaps our favorite song. Why can't we memorize a Bible verse occasionally and allow that to be the thing that we can quote and use daily to guide and guard us? As we think about the Word of God, such memorization will be time well spent. And perhaps as we come near the close of that given thought, I'd like to pose one other set of thinking. In the last year or two, we at Pippin here have taken the liberty and the opportunity to look interestingly in some of our lessons at some of the books of the Bible. In fact, you might remember we completed a whole series of the book of Colossians in which we went verse by verse in our sermon time and gleaned much, I would hope, from that kind of study. We did also something similar for the book of Nahum in the Old Testament, and we did the same for the book of Revelation, the closing book in the Bible. Perhaps in the coming year, we also will take that approach more frequently as we look at some other books in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, and strive to look at them in detail and allow their teaching to ferment in our mind and to perhaps lead us to understand some things that we haven't understood as well as we have in the past. Hopefully some of the lessons, I'll try to arrange them and look at some of the books in exactly that fashion. As that's done, I'll try to certainly let you know when that's happening so that we each can read and be prepared for that kind of study. In addition, might we not forget the matter of prayer as we pray to God for His assistance and His blessing as we learn more about His Word and apply it in our daily walk of life. Isn't it still the case that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James 5.16. And aren't we reminded in 1 John 3.22 that God will bless us with those things of which we ask of Him if we follow Him. Tonight as we come to the close of this lesson, Expectation for 2010 was the title that I gave it. To summarize very briefly some of what we've seen, that slide attempts to do it. As we look forward to 2010, first, the changelessness of the Christ. He must be our foundation. And on that foundation, we proceed, in fact, to note and to build the following ideas. First, we understand the need for determination, the work that will be involved in change, and the appreciation that goes with it of the devotion with regard to the Word of God and the proper place of our prayer to our Heavenly Father. Tonight, as we each ask the question, am I in the faith? Are you in the faith? Are you building upon the foundation of the Christ? Acts 4 verse 12 still reminds us that neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So as we look forward to the year 2010, if you need to begin building tonight, perhaps you've never become a Christian. In that case, you would need to begin building that building is a structure not made with hands, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1. It's a structure that begins with this kind of appreciation. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name in the hearing of others, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. If you have done that, but you haven't lived faithful to that calling... And we are called by the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. If you need to come back to that first love, why not tonight? There will never be a better night than this 27th day of December 2009. And if we could be of assistance in either of those ways this evening, won't you let that desire of your heart be known while together we stand and while we sing?